expect that beginning to a preach, did you? Can anybody tell me whether you are perfectly happy with every area of your life at the moment? Have you got everything that you need? I'm talking about enough money, uh, good friends, great family life, fulfilling work. No, me neither. <laughs> that song by Queen perfectly articulates how we are as people. I want it all, and I want it now. Not, not tomorrow. Good friends and family, a great career, the perfect girlfriend or the ideal husband, and for our lives to have significance and a lasting impact. I want it all, don't you? I don't, I don't just want like one thing to be okay and everything else to be a bit rubbish. I want it all. We all aspire to that kind of happy, fulfilled life, and that's not wrong, but uh, how do we move towards that? What is, what's the route to success? It's the kind of life and lifestyle that Instagram portrays, and it seems lovely, but strangely unachievable. You know, here you go, here's my perfect house, here's my beautiful spouse, and it seems like everything is kind of, uh, you know, life is like a photo shoot. I know some people like Ivy, Ivor Davy do, do have a life like that. Um, but the, the rest of us mere mortals, it's like, oh, how do you... How do you get to that? And if we spend too much time looking at other people's lives, it can just make us feel dissatisfied with how our lives are. I'd love someone to start a real Instagram account uh, with kind of how life really is. Here's my example. So this is, this is my life. Here's the boxes in my bedroom. Don't tell Jess that I'm showing you this, by the way. She'll be horrified. Um, here's the peeling paint on my wall. Uh, and there's the scratches on my car. We won't get into who, who caused them. That would be controversial. When I was young, I think my main aspiration was to have the kind of family that I'd grown up in. And although my life wasn't perfect when I was young, looking back, I recognize what a blessing it was to have parents who love me and to really have pretty much everything that I needed, probably more than I needed. Um, some people are more career driven. They want to make their mark in a certain profession or they want to make lots of money and kind of be able to do things in life. Um, they, whereas they say millennials, that's people born in the 80s and 90s. Sadly, I, I was born slightly before that, never mind. Um, apparently, millennials aren't so bothered about career and salary but they're more motivated by a cause like alleviating child poverty or stopping people trafficking or something like that. All the millennials here are now like, no, actually, I'd quite like a good salary. Anyway, you could sum up those kind of different areas of life like this as companionship, career, and cause, or your who, your what, and your why. Who are you going to share your life with? What are you going to do? And why do you exist? 
What's your reason for being? What motivates you? So it may be you have a certain kind of job, but actually that's not your why. Your why is painting watercolors in the style of Rembrandt. I know he didn't paint watercolors, or something like that. But or for some people, it's a certain thing that they do, and they feel like, that's, that's my why. Or it may be a project or a charity, or it may be a, a grand vision of affecting change in society. We can tend to think those are just questions that we grapple with when we're young, but actually, whatever stage of life you're at, you're probably still grappling with those questions. Even when you become ancient, like me, you're still trying to figure out, you know, what's my who, what's my what, what's my why? Also, people can do amazing things in one area. You know, they can have an amazing cause and do amazing things in life, but actually their family life is an absolute car crash. And so um, how do we kind of juggle these different areas of life and find balance? Freddie Mercury, who helped write that song. I, I was thinking about dressing up as Freddie Mercury, but I thought I, I wouldn't scare you all. Um, he said this, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. So how do we balance these different things? We're looking at the life of David, and we're in a part of the series that speaks a lot about friendship and relationships and family life. And in the Bible verses we're going to look at today, David is trying to balance those three things, companionship, career, and cause. And I believe these verses are going to help us grapple with these issues with these issues, particularly in terms of our relationships. So we're going to read together uh, from 1 Samuel 18. It's in the middle of your Old Testament, first bit of the Bible, and we're going to start from verse 17. Saul said to David, here is my daughter Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now, Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. Who wouldn't be? And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, 
the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. You're glad you came this morning, aren't you? I should have done a government, government health warning at the beginning. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So, before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Ah, who does the preaching writer? Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michal, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. We can tend to think of the story of David as being mainly about military battles and kind of David on a hillside with a harp somewhere writing psalms and worship songs. But David's story talks so much about family life. It's great joys and deep sorrows. Family life is so important to God. Not just nuclear family, like mum and dad and 2.4 children, but wider family. We are part of a church family, and we belong in this family because of Jesus. He has made us brothers and sisters. David is at this point, uh, he's juggling the potential marriage to Saul's daughter. He's juggling his military career as a commander in Saul's army, uh, as a commander of a thousand men. And he's also juggling his cause or calling to serve God, as it says in verse 17, fighting the battles of the Lord. That is David's why. He was God's man, a man after God's own heart, chosen to be king and lead God's people. Now, you'd think that would have been David's primary focus. And for him to think, this is my route through. This is my way of achieving success. And it would have been easy for him to feel a sense of entitlement, like, make way, here I am, Israel's champion, I defeated Goliath. I think people talked about great wealth and no taxes for life. That sounds good to me. Yeah, I'll marry the king's daughter. That's fine. And yeah, maybe give me the kingship as well. He could have sung that song. I want it all and I want it now. But that's not what he did. David was humble. He didn't try to grab the limelight. He didn't try and get all the credit and all the recognition for the things that he had done. He says in verse 18, who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? 
Remember, a couple of chapters earlier, Samuel the prophet had anointed David in secret as king already. Even though Saul was already there, David had been anointed as king. Surely the route to getting what you want is self-promotion and making things happen. Isn't that right? No. David says it's humility. Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing, it's worth repeating, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. David says in verse 23, I am a poor man and little known. Uh, David, they're singing songs about you, killing 10,000s of Philistines, and you defeated Goliath. David had some serious concerns about marrying into the royal family. Who wouldn't? I mean, oh, Stuart got that joke. Everyone else is asleep, Stuart. He was thinking, uh, am I up to this? Am I a suitable match for a princess? What amazing humility. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. When people are looking for romance, they can be in danger of setting such high expectations for the person that they want to be with that it's a little bit of a joke, really. They, they can, you know, I've known guys wanting to, wanting to meet a nice girl and get married, and they, they're looking for someone that's kind of got the faith of Mother Teresa and the looks of a, you know, of a supermodel or something like that. And you feel like saying, have you looked in the mirror recently? And when was the last time I saw you at a prayer meeting? Or something like that. You know, so we can, we can set our standards very, very high. Nicky Gumbel writes in his Bible in One Year commentary, we tend to look for the perfect spouse, perfect parents, perfect children, perfect friends, perfect leaders like Eleanor and the perfect church. But these don't exist. All of us, say all of us. Some of you believe it are flawed human beings. Recognizing this helps us to be more realistic and less disappointed, that makes me laugh, and more forgiving in our relationships. David didn't assume that he was a good match for a princess. The Bible speaks elsewhere about us being evenly yoked, becoming a partnership of equals. I thought you'd like to see some silly photos of me. Here they are. That's, that's me with long hair. Yes, I agree, Jess and I don't look evenly yoked. And then this is us. Um, I think we're trying to be legless, and, and I don't know whether Jess is being Galadriel or someone like that. That's not my real hair, just so you know. And I think I'm wearing, like, medical scrubs. I don't know, I don't know where they came from why I thought that was a good kind of outfit for Legolas anyway. But 
I agree with you. We don't look evenly yoked. I, I admit, I have married way above my station. Um, but a good question to ask yourself, if there's someone you aspire to be with, is am I the kind of person that I want to be with? If you want a husband or wife who's passionate about God, then is that how you are? If you want someone who's conscientious and kind, then are you? And you can apply that to any area of your life. If there's a job that you would love to do, and you're thinking, why do I never get it? Well, are you the kind of person that if you were the employer, you would want to put in that role? And maybe we need to work on becoming that kind of person. Rather than just looking for perfection in others and expecting good things to come our way, let's follow David's humble example. Now, let me tell you a story about me being humbled, okay? It's very painful for me, but I give you permission to laugh at me, and you, I'm sure you've got you haven't got rotten fruit and vegetables to throw at me. Um, when I was a student, when Jess and I were students, uh, we'd uh, gone out. We'd been dating for a couple of years, and then we, we broke up, which often happens in relationships. Um, I won't go into the details of the whys and where, wherefores. But anyway, we broke up. I was fine for a while, okay? And then one fateful day, I woke up and the realization hit me. Oh no, I'm in love with her and I do want to get back together. But she just wanted to be friends. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Stuart. It was painful and humbling. And I remember uh, we were at different universities, so I was in London, she was in Birmingham. I got invited to her 21st birthday party, and there were about 25 or 30 people that went out for a meal in a restaurant. And I thought that I would either sit next to her or near her. Okay, guess where I got sat? This is Jess. I got sat so far away that it was like I was in the Outer Hebrides. Ultimate rejection. Honestly, I felt rejected, humiliated. I probably had moments of thinking my life was over, which was maybe slightly melodramatic. Um, but it was gutting. Don't worry. We got back together eventually and got married and happy ending, tick. Um, often, the point is, often things don't go the way that we expect. We struggle with delay, and often patience is a virtue we feel, I can do without that. I, I don't need patience. I want everything to go the way I want now. But every season has a reason. David understood that we don't need to force God's hand or make things happen. We just have to trust him. It takes humility to admit, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers, but it also takes courage to not become passive, not giving up and saying, oh, there's no point, nothing ever goes right for me. 
we can take responsibility for the season and situation that we find ourselves in. David could have seriously thought, oh, my opportunity's passed. When Mirab, the older daughter, got married off to someone else. But God brought about another means to accomplish his plans in David's life. Saul's younger daughter, Michal, was in love with David. Saul was so insecure and jealous of David's popularity, we heard a bit about that last week from Andy, that he thought he could use Michal to bring about David's downfall. Crazy, isn't it? Most dads are like, I just want my daughter to be happy and to marry someone nice. But no, Saul's like, I'm going to use my daughter to try and bring down David. And we see Saul's plan in verse 25 was to get David killed. He assumed that David would die in the attempt to kill 100 Philistines and bring back certain body parts as trophies. What is going on here? Let's just speak to the elephant in the room. Um, This is a pretty gruesome request. Did David have no qualms about killing Philistines, first of all? Well, you have to remember the context of the Old Testament. This was a brutal culture with two enemy nations at war. And that doesn't mean that we take any kind of literal view about warfare and we don't condone violence or bloodshed. We view it through New Covenant eyes, New Testament eyes. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces at work in the world. So that's our perspective. But at that point in their history, God had told the Israelites to drive out the surrounding nations. They were literally standing in the way of God's promises being fulfilled. God wanted a people for himself who were very different from other peoples who were surrounding them, who worshipped false gods and engaged in terrible practices like child sacrifice. Saul's strange request may in some way connect with the Israelite practice of circumcision that was performed on every male child as a sign of God's people being devoted to God and set apart for him. God is still looking for a people who are different, who are set apart, who are saying, I'm not just going to do things the way everyone else does. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to be devoted to him. So Saul thought David would die in trying to do this, but he was wrong. Why is that? Because in verse 28, it says, the Lord was with David. Saul's plan to bring David down actually became the means for David to step into his inheritance. Every bad thing, maybe that someone else intends to harm you, can become a blessing. Every challenge can be used by God as a chance for you. And every obstacle can become an opportunity for you to step into something that God intends for you. The end result of all of this, we're told in verse 30, was that 
David's name became even more famous. He was even more highly esteemed. So although Saul intended it for harm, God used it for good. It's very hard to humble yourself when you think you know better than someone else. I'm sure you can't relate to this in your workplace or in your marriage or with housemates, maybe if you're a student sharing a house. I'm sure you always think, no, they know better than I do. And you, and you find it easy to humble yourself. David probably thought he knew better than Saul a lot of the time. And we can do the same in our relationships. So how do we humble ourselves? Because it's not wrong to think, actually, I think I, think I know better when to mow the grass than you do, or whatever it may be, or I know when the optimum time to put the bins out is. We need to look to a higher authority than ourselves. It says in 1 Peter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. When the time came, David wasn't passive. He saw his God-given opportunity and he took action. Now, if you went to a father to ask permission to marry his daughter, and he said, yes, the condition is 100 Philistine foreskins, you might get the impression that this is a slightly strange family that you're marrying into. Yet, David's response in verse 27 was, yep, and I'll double it. Let's make it 200. Now, uh, not all of us here will have got married in Britain. Some of us will have, are from another nation, will have got married in a different culture. And marriage takes different forms in different cultures. Other cultures have more of a community focus and the idea of bringing two families together. I think our culture here is more and more becoming, it's about me and you, and, it, and it's us, and then we might you know, include some family and friends in that, but it's really about us. And a dowry or bride price isn't something that our culture has. Yet, I think there's something helpful in thinking about uh, putting a value on a bride. That, is this person worth pursuing? Do you understand that they are precious and valuable? Do you cherish someone enough to not be sexually active with them until you're married. That's what we see again and again in the Bible. Sex is a gift from God intended only for a marriage covenant. And Andy talked about covenants last week. If you push those boundaries before marriage, you aren't respecting that person and you're touching what isn't yet yours to touch. Attraction and desire are God-given, and they're not wrong, but their fulfillment should only be found within marriage. Now, as an aside, my observation with weddings is that people are becoming more and more consumed with the event and the day. You know, let my big, fat Greek wedding. Apologies if you're Greek. Um, and they forget that most, most of life is about process. 
and journey. Yes? Nod at me if you agree. Yes, some of you agree. Um, so, I would rather, if you're not yet married, I'd rather you had a rubbish wedding and a great marriage. Yeah? Rather than, oh, the day was so beautiful and Ben's hair was just right and, you know, she looked amazing. And blah, blah, but, oh, we've got a terrible marriage. How sad. And girls, before you start throwing things at me, you can have both. You can have a great day and a great marriage. Uh, you probably need marriage prep, but you can have that. Now, what David had to do to win Michal seems like hard work. And we often shy away from taking responsibility like that because we want it all and we want it now. Surely what you want should just land in your lap or be given, it, given to you like you're entitled to it. But anything worthwhile takes commitment and sacrifice and hard work, a friendship, a career, a marriage, a calling. So take action. Ask her out. Apply for that job. Do the thing that you feel God's called you to do. It won't necessarily happen straight away or happen really easily. But you can start preparing yourself and go on that journey. And maybe you need to take action on things that there's things that you're involved in, maybe an unhealthy relationship or things you're involved in at work that you know are a bit compromising. You need to take action. Whatever it is for you, don't be passive. Take action. And how do we take action? By faith. Not in our own strength, but trusting God. David believed that God was with him and God would help him. Now, time is short, but I want to give you a very uh, few uh, brief points of application. I asked a number of friends, both single and married, for their collective wisdom on relationships. And I've added some of my own thoughts. And so let's have the matrix. Here it is, some do's and don'ts. We'll try and rattle through this. If you are single, do pursue group friendships and build, if you're pursuing a romantic relationship, try and do it in the context of community. Don't get isolated. Allow other people in and it will help you get to know one another. Don't assume that marriage is easy and that married people are all sorted. Married people, you're allowed to laugh with me. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, we're just as much a mess as everyone else, aren't we? Um, married people do listen sensitively and be a friend and draw people who are on their own. Maybe they're not yet married. Maybe they're, uh, they're separated. Maybe they're divorced. Maybe they've been widowed. If you're married, you have ready-made companionship. You have someone you can process life with. Families need to open up to people who are on their own, who might be isolated and lonely, and give them space to process all the little things, tension at work, stress and anxiety, money issues, or oh, book plug. I want to recommend to you um, Ed Shaw's book, the plausibility, oh, even Tim Wiles thinks it's good, so it must be good. Um, the plausibility problem, he speaks about this. Across the church, we need to be 
a family where those things can be open up and shared. If you're married, don't think that singleness is a problem that you need to fix. Oh, oh yeah, we do. if they get married, then, then they'll be sorted. Rubbish. Marriage isn't the Jerry Maguire, you complete me. It's, it's not like I'm half a person and I need someone else to complete me. I am a whole person, and when I marry them, I give of myself to that person. So we add to one another. We don't complete one another. Friendship. This is for all of us. Move towards other people. Don't wait for other people to move towards you. Don't complain, I don't have any friends. Ask someone round. Go out for a drink and say, who wants to come? And then if people say no, come and talk to me and I'll sort them out. Um, don't assume that other people have friends. Oh, there's no one to be friends with because they're all full up. Um, and don't assume that other people are okay. A great antidote to that is just asking people, how are you? Dating, keep it moving. Seek out advice and wise counsel. Don't ask your friend to ask someone out for you. That's called avoiding responsibility. Stuart, please would you go and get 100 Philistine foreskins for me? No. Um, getting engaged, invite input. Chat with someone you respect, your parents, or if you don't respect your parents, find someone that you do respect and ask their opinion. Don't act like you're already married. You're not married, you're engaged to be married. Is that right? That's right, Stuart says it's right. So don't share a room. Don't go on holiday alone. That's what married people do. Single people don't do that. Getting married. Talk about getting married. You can speak to a pastor, one of us, or um, speak to Stuart and Emma about marriage preparation. Process with other people. Don't go it alone. Don't get it all worked out just between two of you and set your date and it's all planned. And then you just announce to other people, this is when it's happening. Talk it out. We wanna, we're here to help. We want to help. We want your wedding and your marriage to be the best it can possibly be. So invite other people in and journey with others. And then this is really for all of us as a community. Keep reaching out to new people, new people at church. Keep reaching out to people who are on the edge, people you think, I haven't seen them for a while, maybe they're struggling. Keep reaching out to people who don't yet know Jesus. And finally, don't be cliquey and exclusive. Don't just hang with all the people that you know well and feel comfortable with. Okay, coming into land, you may feel like your life falls far short of that I want it all lifestyle. David wasn't perfect, far from it. He made some terrible mistakes later in his life, and we'll, we'll look at them as we go through this series. We're not perfect either. No one in this church is claiming anything like perfection. We all know how flawed we are and how much help we need. You may feel like you've messed up so badly that you're beyond hope. 
you may feel like your situation, a relationship or a job or whatever it is, feels irredeemable. But David's humility and his sense of responsibility here point us to a perfect example. David's not the perfect example. Jesus is our perfect example. He's the one who has the power and the authority to forgive us, to redeem us, and to restore us. I want to sum it all up with this phrase. We want it all. We want healthy relationships. We want fulfilling work and meaning in our lives. But Jesus gave it all for us by sacrificing his life on the cross. To give by grace as a free gift what was out of our grasp, what we could never earn or achieve or deserve on our own. In Jesus, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. There's hope for our relationships. And there's hope for people in Bristol.